So this morning we have the privilege of, of hearing from Alex Kirk. He's going to be our preacher for this morning. Uh, this is a tremendous gift to me personally as it allowed me to really enjoy the clergy retreat that I'll share with you a little bit more later on in the service. Uh, but the clergy retreat was this last week. Um, and so I'm very grateful for Alex uh, to come and share with us, to open up the word with us. Um, Alex is a fantastic teacher. In fact, he works with Training Leaders International, where he goes overseas and teaches pastors how to teach the Word. So uh, I'm looking forward to learning much from you this morning. Um, in fact, we just got done uh, finishing, uh, or we were praying for him the last few weeks as he was overseas in Siberia. Uh, and then he and his wife, Megan, have also just welcomed little Ruth into the world. Um, and we're just delighted to hear from you this morning, my brother. Come on up. On switch. Okay, how about now? Okay, great. Yeah, it really is an honor and a privilege to be here this morning. Uh, yeah, I love teaching. I, I love the Bible and what God has to say for us. Uh, so it really is great to be here. And it's a privilege to me as well that Rick and Molly would welcome me to, to speak to you guys and to open up the word together. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the passage from the book of Jeremiah. And you know, when I was preparing the message, I honestly didn't think a ton about the season of Lent or how the passage might tie into Lent or uh, build that into the message very much. But then when I reflected back on what we've been looking at, you know, the people who put together these lectionary readings, you know, were theological geniuses. And <laughs> it's no accident that this passage falls on this week, getting towards the end of the season of Lent. And it's no accident the other passages that go together with it. So I think you're going to see that it really it causes us to reflect on these themes of, of discipline and, and sin and the kind of darkness that we've experienced throughout the season of Lent, but it's starting to really steer us towards the light of the gospel. So with that just short introduction, will you pray again with me for, uh, for our time this morning? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word that you have spoken to us to encourage us and give us life. Father, I pray that if there are any here who uh, need to be disrupted this morning, that you would disrupt them. Father, I pray that if there are any here who, who need to be comforted this morning, Lord, that you would comfort them. Father, I pray that the words of my lips, the meditation of all of our hearts, would be pleasing to you this morning, uh, our rock and our redeemer. It's in your son's name that we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think we ignore it most of the time, just so that we can kind of function. But the question of what is, what is ultimately wrong with the world is constantly facing us if we will face it. Chronic poverty, school shootings, global terrorism, I mean... If you dig deep enough looking for kind of the, the reasons behind these things, you can find shelves of analysis that try to get to the bottom of it. What Scripture says is actually pretty clear. Scripture teaches that what is wrong with the world is the corrupt, broken human heart. Well, you might ask, you know, did, did the corrupt heart 
create the grinding poverty or has the grinding poverty created the corrupt heart? Well, it's hard to tell sometimes, but I think what's really clear is that the poverty isn't going anywhere until the corruption stops. Now, so we don't get too kind of stuck in geopolitics and world economics and this kind of thing. This becomes all the more pressing and, uh, and personal when we realize that what is wrong with the world is what's wrong with me. How come we don't fix all the brokenness in our own lives, right? It's obvious that life would be better if we were more reliable or more disciplined or more loving or, or more selfless or healthier, right? And yet so often we see the good that we ought to do. We see it very clearly and yet we you know, hit the snooze button and sleep five more minutes. Your corrupt, broken heart is what is wrong with the world. Some of you will know the story of uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a Russian author and journalist who really suffered just like an incredible amount of unjust suffering at the hands of the Soviet Union, and he wrote about it a lot. Uh, and his writings actually ended up eventually helping to bring the whole system down. But Solzhenitsyn was a Russian soldier on the front lines in World War II. And, you know, he experienced just some incredible atrocities on both sides. Uh, he ended up being twice decorated for valor in combat by the Russian army. Uh, and so when the war was over, Stalin thanked him for his service by sentencing him to eight years in a Siberian prison camp. Uh, all because he had written in a few personal, private letters some things that were critical about how the war was being run. Now, if I were Solzhenitsyn, I think I would be tempted to kind of wallow in like a victimized rage, right? But... This is not ultimately what Solzhenitsyn did. Instead, he decided to ask himself the question, what did I do to end up here? And so day after day, half-starving, doing the back-breaking work of a foundryman and a miner and a bricklayer, he made a moral inventory of his whole life going back to childhood and cataloged everything he had ever done that went against his own conscience. And that process led him to write some, the words that are some of his most famous words. He says this, If only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through every human heart. And who is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? If you look back at the passage from Jeremiah, verses 31 and 32... What Jeremiah is getting at, this, this is what Jeremiah is getting at. 
Essentially saying the old covenant plus your heart equals failure. And another famous passage in Jeremiah, the prophet writes, the heart is the most treacherous thing and it is mortally sick. Who can know it? The promise of the gospel is that the Lord will restore your heart so that you can know him. The promise of the gospel is that the Lord will restore your heart so that you can know him. So what does Jeremiah mean when he says that God will write the law on our hearts? And, and moreover, what significance does this have for us today, our, our modern lives? Well, writing the law on your heart means that the Lord will restore your motivations from within so that you can keep his law. So different cultures have different conceptions of the body and how it works, you know, medically and how they think about it. And, and metaphorically, in terms of, you know, spiritual and psychological and emotional realities. So the ancient Israelites, when they talk about the heart, they knew that it was in the chest and that it sustains life, right? They also talk about it as the center of our emotional activity, both good and bad, but they talk about it in some ways that would be foreign to us as modern people, largely because in the Hebrew Bible, there's no word for brain. And so you know and you understand with your heart. You, you discern right from wrong with your heart. And ultimately, your heart is where desires, desires that motivate your actions and your affections reside. And so... When it tells us the story of King David, how he wanted to build the temple, it says that David had it in his heart to build a temple for the Lord. Or in the book of Proverbs, uh, if you lack heart, you're senseless and you can't make good decisions. That's why Proverbs 4.23 tells us, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So your heart is like the rudder of the ship of your life. Whichever direction it inclines, your whole life goes that way. Um, we would have to kind of collapse our concepts of you know, the brain and the heart and the gut all together to get at this idea. Uh, it's really your entire internal life is centered in your heart. So when Jeremiah says God is going to write the law on your heart, it means that he's going to put his purposes on the very core of who you are. How you make decisions, what you feel and think, what motivates you. Likewise, when scripture talks about the law, it doesn't just mean rules or obligations. It's rather the revelation of who God is and how we must behave in order to live with him and reflect his character. So, of course, I mean, it's captured in its most famous form in the Ten Commandments, but it can be boiled down to something even more concise than that. Love. Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with your whole life, with everything you have, with your heart. Jesus himself says that this is the greatest commandment and Paul too says that the whole law can be summarized with the law of love. For us, I think the law is something 
abstract, right? It doesn't, it doesn't exist in any one place. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe you've got it in your hand, you know, maybe it's on your phone, it's in the cloud, right? But transport yourself back to ancient Israel for a second. For an ancient Israelite, the law was a physical reality. Two tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God and placed in the core of the temple in Jerusalem in the Holy of Holies. Maybe you live a long way away from the law. Maybe once a year, if you're lucky, you get to travel to Jerusalem and you get to hear the high priest read from the law. I mean, you certainly can't read. So, I mean, it's almost like magic. How does the priest turn those marks into the living word of the Lord? So it's this law, inscribed by the finger of God to reflect his purposes and his character, you are held accountable to this law. But your corrupt heart is beating in your chest driving every decision. And the law is on tablets of stone in Jerusalem. In his book, The Power of Habit, uh, Charles Duhigg tells a story of a woman named Lisa Allen. And he met her as part of a research study. And so when he first read about her on paper, it said, you know, she was 34 years old, She had been smoking and drinking to excess since she was 16. Uh, She was thousands of dollars in debt, chronically struggling with with obesity. Uh, She had not held down a job for more than a year in her entire adult life. But when he actually met her face-to-face about four years later, she was 38 years old, and her file had been updated to say that she was debt-free, she was a homeowner, tobacco and alcohol-free, in her 39th month at a graphic design firm, and working on her master's degree. So, what happened? Right? Well, Lisa said that it happened in Cairo. The vacation had been uh, a bit of a rash, spur-of-the-moment decision. Several months prior, her husband had come to her and said that he was in love with another woman and he would be divorcing her. Lisa had always been uh, a little bit self-destructive, and so now she really spiraled out of control. And eventually, she ended up pounding on her husband's girlfriend's door in the middle of the night, completely wasted, screaming that she was going to burn the place down. And that's when she decided she should maybe just leave town. She'd always wanted to see the pyramids. Her credit cards weren't maxed out yet, and so she got on a plane. Uh, and, you know, that first morning in Cairo, the call to prayer woke her up in the wee hours of the morning, and, you know, half blind and jet-lagged, she reached for a cigarette, and she ended up just melting the end of a big pen instead. (laughs) And she says this. She says, I felt like everything I had ever wanted had crumbled. I couldn't even smoke right. (laughs) And then I started thinking about my ex-husband and how hard it would be to find another job when I got back and how much I was going to hate it and how unhealthy I felt all the time. I felt desperate, like I had to change something. 
And so as she rode through the streets of Cairo in a taxi, she looked out across the desert and she said, I'm going to come back in one year and I'm going to trek that desert and I'm going to go to those pyramids. She knew the first thing that would have to change for her to accomplish that goal was smoking. So she quit and she started running instead. And one by one, she rebuilt every habit in her life as a consequence of that moment. Now, in the book, Duhigg analyzes this story as an example of the power of habits to affect like neurological change, right? But I think what's going on with Lisa is even deeper than Duhigg admits. Because in a moment of personal honesty, Lisa's motivations went from external to internal. It went from I ought to change to I must and will change. No moral endeavor that you undertake in your life is ever going to be ultimately successful without that shift from external to internal. And what the gospel is promising you is that the Lord will effect that change in your heart. Writing the law in your heart means that the Lord will restore your motivations from within so that you can keep the law. No longer will it be on tablets of stone in the temple. You are the temple and it's on the tablet of your heart. But in order to restore your heart, the Lord must first remove the sin and guilt. Look at verse 34. Jeremiah says, For I will forget, or Jeremiah speaking for the Lord says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And the logic of Jeremiah's promise, this is the foundation for the transformation of our hearts. Previously, Jeremiah says that it's our sins that are engraven on our hearts. The Lord cannot write his perfect, holy law on a heart that's covered over with the record of all its previous wrongs, like graffiti, a, part that's a heart that's fundamentally polluted and corrupted. In the New Covenant, which Christians call the Gospel, God has cleansed our heart through the blood of Christ. Listen to how Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 explains it. it. says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Elsewhere in Scripture, we discover that that is the Holy Spirit. We receive it now that Christ has died as a ransom to set us free from the sins committed under the first covenant. By the blood of Christ, he is cleansing our hearts, forgiving our sins from all unrighteousness. Now, try something with me. Maybe just close your eyes for a second and soak in this metaphor. Picture it. Your chest opens up and your heart 
rises out. And you see it clearly for the first time. There's disgusting, fatty, cartilaginous blockages. Black, inky masses floating in in stained chambers. And there's these husky, dried over bits that look like they don't even work at all. And then the hands of the great healer, like the most skilled surgeon in the world, begin to massage and tenderize every nook, fleshing out every blockage, draining off the foul black liquid. And then, with his finger like a pen of light, he begins to etch into the very flesh of your heart the words of his law of love. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. You shall have no other gods before him. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when he is finished, so that your whole heart, inside and out, front and back, is covered with every word of his perfect law, he places it back into your chest and reconnects it to every heart, to your heart, to every motivation, every feeling, every thought that animates you. And then you wake up. If you have faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, it is done. When Christ gave us this table, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood which purifies us from all unrighteousness. It's like the doctor came in and told you that you have heart disease and then in the next breath said, but while you were sleeping, we already did the quadruple bypass. (laughs) All that's left for you to do is strengthen this muscle. So your restored heart means that you now can and must live like you know the Lord. So look again at verse 34. The truth, literally at the center of this whole covenant promise, is that when the Lord forgives your sins and writes the law on your heart, you will know the Lord. So what does it mean, what does it look like to live that way? Well, once God has purified our hearts by forgiving our sins, he writes his law on our hearts by sending us his Holy Spirit so that we can know him. The Holy Spirit is that gift of the new covenant, the sign and seal of that promised eternal inheritance. This combination of the forgiveness of sins and the law in your hearts is what scripture calls a clean conscience. Hebrews 9.14, the verse just before what we read a few minutes ago, says this, how much more then how much more than animal sacrifices, 
will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we can serve the living God. A clean conscience empowers and ennobles you to live like you know the Lord. That is, it empowers you to follow his law, reflect his character, live in relationship with him. Paul says that the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So, living like you know God means strengthening your conscience. And you strengthen your conscience by listening to it, right? So you'll be standing in line for donuts this week and there'll just be a flash that goes through your head and it says, ah, I really shouldn't spend my money on this and I really don't need to put my, this in my body right now. Or you'll be driving home from work and you'll just get that sneaking feeling that, that you need to call that, that particular friend that you haven't spoken to in some time. Uh, or maybe you'll be at a party and just inside you'll think to yourself, man, stop talking about yourself for a second and just show some genuine interest in somebody else for a change. Uh, or maybe you'll be withdrawn and resentful of a family member and something deep inside you prompts you uh, to, to begin to move towards them, to begin to try to forgive. Go out from here and listen to the voice of your conscience as the word of the Lord written on your heart. Neurologists tell us that it's like we have grooves in our brain, grooves carved into our brain, like, like where water drips on a stone for, for years or where cattle summer after summer walk in single file through a field, right? Right? And we form these grooves through our habits of thought and action so that it becomes very, very difficult to break ourselves out of them. When you listen to your conscience, it's like you're tracing over the letters of the law that are carved into your heart, making them bolder and deeper so that you live in them. You become the kind of person who lives in the ruts of the Lord's law as he has carved it on your heart. Every time you listen to your conscience, it gets stronger and you strengthen your relationship with God. So finally, living like you know God means trusting him to one day perfect your heart. On the days when your conscience does condemn you, when you live like you don't know the Lord at all, knowing that you have the law on your heart also seals you and makes you the Lord's treasured possession. Scripture teaches that Christ will return to claim those who are his and to one day perfect the salvation that we are experiencing now. Having the law written on your heart means that your orientation your motivation for life are fundamentally looking to the Lord, fundamentally oriented to that day will he, when he will perfect your heart by binding it to his. The promise of the gospel 
is that the Lord will restore your heart so that you can know him. And the law in your heart is a guarantee that when Christ returns, he will claim you as his own. About every heart that has his law written on it, Christ will say, these are my people. I am their God. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, what a powerful promise and blessing we have in this promise of the new covenant. Lord, as we continue to reflect uh, through to the end of this season of Lent and looking towards the hope of Easter, we're you made all of this real. Lord, we pray that you would write your law on our hearts, that you would continue to write it on our hearts, that we would be the kind of people who know you and live in relationship with you and listen. Father, what a blessing, what a joy. We thank you in the name of your Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.